Hello, you're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wilchko. Our guest today works at the intersection of machine learning, applied statistics, genetics, and protein engineering. Professor Jennifer Liskarten is from UC Berkeley's Electrical Engineering and Computer Sciences Department, as well as the Center for Computational Biology. She says it's important to have a good nose for the sweet spot where you can use a new machine learning method to solve an interesting biological question. Her work on the gene editing process CRISPR-Cas9 is now used worldwide and is saving researchers hours of wasted experimental time and improving accuracy. She has now moved on to protein engineering and is at the cutting edge of predictive modeling of protein properties. What is it that she finds so fascinating about this new field of work? Hello, Jennifer. Uh, It's so lovely to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. You know, on this show, we love talking to people like yourself who work at the intersection of different disciplines. I have to say, you seem to have taken that to another level. You've been described as a machine learning researcher, a computational biologist, and now a protein engineer. Which one are you? (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's a a good question. I I, I do change uh, as the years go by, which is what keeps it fun. I guess uh, in my heart, I'm always a machine learning person. I'm always interested in developing new methods. And at the same time, I'm, I've always been very interested in science. And so I guess the common core theme is machine learning and broadly molecular biology. And then within that, I have meandered around most recently into protein engineering, which I'm taking very seriously. And so I would, I would actually think it's an honor to be called a protein engineer since I very recently entered this field. Uh, but that would be great. You know, maybe we can start by going back in time a little bit. I know that you were a bit rambunctious as a child. If I understand correctly, you were even expelled from a few schools. Uh, you got to give us the story. Well, not <laughs> I was not quite expelled, but I was kicked out of a few classes in high school, I guess. Uh, I don't know <laughs> what kind of details you want. I had a French teacher in frustration the last month before the class ended. Just to please leave and don't come back. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I had a, I actually had a math teacher in high school I didn't get along very well with. And I requested to transfer to a different version because it was a pretty big high school. And they said, I'm sorry, the classes are full. And, they, and I got my parents to call and they still said, no, I'm sorry, it's full. But then at some point, I guess this teacher was so unhappy, he requested to have me transferred. And then I did get transferred. <laughs> they made so, a spot for you. <laughs> do you think um, that that had anything to do with kind of growing up to be a multidisciplinary scientist? I don't. That's a really interesting question. Maybe there's a connection. I never thought about it, but it's true that I always just kind of did what was fun and interesting, and I didn't pay a lot of consideration to the pat on the back from the outside. And so that's probably partly why I think it takes a bit of courage to go into an interdisciplinary area. And I'm always kind of amazed that some of that there are PhD students who want to do it because it's so much more challenging than to go into like a very narrow area, especially as a junior person. And so perhaps there is a temperament associated with that. Uh, I'm guessing you you two probably have some similar <laughs> stories. I don't know. 
the the I think the closest I've come is getting kicked out of a all you can eat CC's pizza for eating too. Oh much my pizza. god, that's <laughs> so much cooler! I need to like figure that one out. <laughs> we we showed up with like a group of like ten high schoolers that were very very hungry, and they said that's enough. Oh. Um, but we do talk with a lot of people on the show, and of course in our in our professional lives with folks that straddle boundaries. And you're totally right; it very much resonates with me what you're saying, which is it's a lot harder. And I'm curious, like from your perspective, what makes it harder? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's harder, but maybe it takes a bit more courage because you, you, you can never, you know, you can never look quite like the expert as someone who puts all their eggs in one basket. Although I, I think uh, it's not something I really thought much about. And now I seem to be recognized as an expert in interdisciplinary research. So maybe I'm I'm actually wrong. But just as an example, like my students, we sit physically mostly within the AI group here at UC Berkeley. And, you know, right now in particular, AI is like a kind of a mad dash to, you know, get the next conference paper out. And it might not be uncommon for some students in some of the sub areas of AI to get out a few conference papers in the top machine learning venues. And the conference papers are the main publication venue, right? Not publication. And in contrast, if you're sitting in my group, you might do one of those, but you probably just do at most one a year because you also have some very long, slow, serious scientific collaboration that's going to take a lot more time to get off the ground. And so if you're at all kind of you know nervous about racking up publications and so forth, then it could add a lot to the stress. I think my group is self-selected for people who don't tend to feel that way because they probably wouldn't do it in that case. But and then I guess the other issue is that you no matter what field you're in, just keeping up on the literature, right, is like it can become a, a compulsion, and you just could just sit all day just scanning, just reading the title, and you wouldn't have enough time. And when you're in an interdisciplinary area, you know, like I, I have spent parts of my life where I was reading a lot of biostatistics and statistics, a lot of machine learning in different areas of machine learning. Uh, and then, you know, some protein engineering, some, you know, this platform, that platform. And it's already impossible, I would say, to stay on top of the literature in many kind of narrower areas. And when it's interdisciplinary, you have to be a little bit comfortable with just saying, like, I don't know, tell me that, tell me this. Like, I think you need to be very comfortable with just saying, I don't know, like, even if you think you probably should know. Uh, and so that's another big challenge. You're quite unusual in terms of there's no shortage of people that go from academia to industry, but yeah. you actually went from industry to academia. Yeah. Maybe t tell us a little bit about that transition. What was it like at MSR? Why did you end up going to Berkeley? Yeah, I, I am an odd duck in a lot of ways. And I feel very fortunate, both that I had the luck to get that job at MSR in the first place. And then the sort of luck that I had was in a position that I could go and try academia kind of on a whim. Uh, and, and I'm extremely grateful for both of those. So I, I was, you know, I, MSR, I was in several locations under several management chains on the whole, I was just very grateful that they, it was kind of in a way like a, a glorified postdoc in the sense that I didn't have a team, uh, but I collaborated with some colleagues. We had a handful of interns, but I was really actually doing a lot of the heavy lifting, and so that was the downside. The positive side was I could kind of work on whatever I wanted as an academic. I had no pressure of obtaining any funding, uh, of doing really any kind of service internally, as you might do in a department or campus. I had no teaching. And it was, it was extremely free, and I could pursue my interests, 
which is what ultimately enabled me to be positioned to go into academia, right? I think if not for that degree of freedom, I probably wouldn't have been able to have had a track record to enable me to do that. Although, of course, it could happen. And, and also because it was very free with publication, right? Like I didn't have to vet my publications with anybody. They said, we trust you will protect IP if it's um, going to be useful to Microsoft and we're not going to kind of like follow you around to make sure you do that. So, you know, be mindful, but we freely publish uh, because that's the model at the time of Microsoft research. So, and then I, I wanted to build my own team. And at that time, it was not possible. I, and I just wanted to be able to do bigger things. And I thought I was a more effective scientist. Actually, I always thought I would have been a more effective scientist not doing the hands-on stuff. Uh, but the, I really loved my position in Microsoft. So I just kept doing it until at some point I felt it ran its course and I wanted to be able to do something bigger. And I felt it was also extremely, the most rewarding part of my job for me was actually working with graduate student interns. Like I really just loved that synergy and the energy and the creativity that comes from doing that. And so the idea of being able to do that full time with long-term relationships just was sort of too seductive. <laughs> So, so maybe to switch gears a little bit, as you move from industry into academia, maybe that's changed the types of problems that you've worked on, but you've worked on pretty fundamental stuff throughout. I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on genetics as, as a data science. So kind of in my training as a biologist, genetics was, I guess, just genetics. It's the process of getting DNA out of organisms and sequencing it and then looking at, you know, what's what genes are in there and what mutations there are. But I think you have a slightly different perspective. Could you could you tell us a bit about that? I, I you know, I wonder if there's some accepted definition of data science or not. Like, I guess, broadly, what does it mean? It means you have some reasonable amount of data that you can't look at by hand that you would like to algorithmically process to elicit insights from. Uh, or to use in some predictive manner as a tool. And so I guess by that definition, genetics certainly falls in there. And I guess, though, perhaps it's not thought of so much that way, because historically, a lot of these things were done even just from sort of like theoretical relationship numbers based on pedigree, right? There's this sort of like relationship matrix. And only when they started to measure genetics, did you get the realized relationship matrix, which is like the instantiation of the probabilities. And so it has this long history of moving from not data science and being actually kind of like a theoretical area within the sciences to something that became data-driven, but it's clearly very data-driven. And in fact, you know, there's a lot of machine learning techniques. Everything's gone interdisciplinary as soon as you have large-scale data and you have people who are open-minded about, you know, getting the best bang for the buck out of it. You know, so Bibi, tell us what made you drift away from genetics and where did you go next? <laughs> well, I, maybe the, the, the larger question is, why do I keep drifting away every few years <laughs> from whatever I'm working on, of which genetics is two ago, right? So before I drifted away from genetics, I was actually doing CRISPR guide design with the Broad Institute and, and uh, John Dench there and my colleague, Nicolo Fuzzi. And uh, so I think the pattern is more that I get restless. I really love machine learning. I really love science. And I really love working with great collaborators who are trying to change the world and to try to do that together. And so there's no more particular reason I left genetics than there is anything else. In fact, a funny story is I remember when I was finishing my PhD and I was interviewing for, for different kinds of jobs and I went to one place and this guy said, you've now published a few papers in immunoinformatics on epitope prediction, HLA 
restriction stuff. And he's like, you're basically the world expert in this. Like you're starting to be, he's like, if you do this for the next 10 years, you will be the worldwide expert. And he said, how, and he was getting super excited. He said, how do you feel about that? And I thought in my head, like about doing this for 10 years, I said, this sounds absolutely horrendous. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I quickly left that area. And so I think that I, I like to, maybe part of what I enjoy is identifying the problems that can benefit Mm. from machine learning more than I enjoy seeing that someone else has already identified this problem and then trying to improve it. I mean, I do end up doing that as well sometimes, but at some point I just feel like I know this area. You know, when, when an area is new, it seems so exciting and challenging and there's so much to learn and there's so many people to talk to. And then by the time you are like are kind of a world expert, like it's not so interesting anymore, at least for me, you know, there's, there's some sort of a steep curve of excitement. And then I just feel like, okay, let's like just leave it to these people to now get the most of it. One thing that that strikes me as I'm hearing about moving between different fields is, you know, I've, I've heard it described that the machine learning academic publishing process is like downhill skiing and it's a race, right? And you've <laughs> got to go as fast as you can. Yeah. And if you miss it by a week, you're, you're out. But what you're kind of describing is like cross country skiing, which is the goal <laughs> isn't necessarily to go as fast as possible, but somewhere interesting far away. Um, or maybe it's like telem, like well, maybe it's the kind. What's it called? Where you telemarking go up yeah. and you go down. Yeah. <laughs> I do like to go fast downhill, but I also like to climb. So maybe that's, uh, but that's an interesting analogy. I never heard of that. Let's switch gears uh, and talk a little bit about your work in protein engineering. How did you get into it? What are you excited about? What are you working on? Yeah. Okay. How I got into it is kind of um, crazy. I had no intent whatsoever to go into it. What happened was I was near the end of my 11 years of Microsoft research and I was kind of not super motivated to work in that model of an independent um, contributor. And so I was, I was just sort of like sick of the areas I was in and I wanted to do something super new. And I just decided that I was going to do this totally harebrained project with an intern that I had just for three months And I thought that what I would look at, I don't know how this came into my head. Maybe it was like a dream, who knows? And I thought that I would sort of do the opposite of codon optimization. So if you haven't heard of, for for people listening, codon optimization, it's this idea that how can I optimize the redundant code that goes from nucleotides to amino acids? Because a codon, triplet nucleotides, right, um, is a codon and it codes for one amino acid, but a given amino acid has different codons, right? And so when you want to have a high expression of a protein, you might optimize among the choices of these redundant codons to get as much expression as possible. And so that's a sort of well-known problem. And I wanted to ask, could I actually predict um, in different organisms, in different parts of the genome, which codons were getting used and to see if there might be some interesting biological insights from that about like with respect to the phylogeny, with respect to parts of the genome, to, you know, functional enrichments and things like this. It was, I, I have no, I had no reason to believe there would be, but I just thought, you know what, the data's there. No one's asked this question, like how cool would it be to find anything. And so we started to work on that. But, you know, part of the reason I left Microsoft was that the internships was was so exciting. They were three months and you can, right, you can just start to scratch the surface of something in that time. So we didn't get very far. But what happened is in pursuing that, I don't know how, through a series of conversations and random reading of paper and so forth, I decided that actually maybe 
codon optimization could be done better than it currently is. So codon optimization has historically been done with extremely simple statistical modeling. And I thought like, why is it using that? Like surely someone can do better. And so I started sort of just looking at that and playing around at that. And then I realized that that was a very limited problem, especially because the translation machinery is sort of only hitting, I believe it, I, I don't remember now, I think like maybe three codons at a time. So it didn't, if it's only touching a few bits at a time, the ability to leverage very high capacity machine learning models is probably not, you know, going to be that likely to be useful. So then I somehow from there, I just thought, well, why codons? Like, why don't I just think of any property? Uh, and and how can I just think about getting the sequence I want to achieve the property I want? So, so what's your current focus? I'm very just interested in questions of methodology that of machine learning for general protein engineering. Like, what are the questions that might arise or that are arising that people haven't thought of that are not the standard kinds of problems solved by machine learning. But when you think of doing like using a model to do protein engineering, you're trying to push it. You want to essentially make calls to a predictive model that the input is a protein sequence and the output is say the property you're trying to engineer, like maybe fluorescence. And so, I mean, it depends how you choose to look at this problem. The way we're looking at it, um, the sort of bare bones perspective at the moment is that we have a model that we've trained and we're going to call it to sort of do in silico screening until we find a protein that satisfies what we want. And, and sort of by definition, if you will, we're going to call that model in parts of the space that we don't know a priori because we're going to have to use a search optimization um, procedure to get there because the space is going to be intractably large um, in most cases. And so this idea of pushing a model to its limit, but you don't know where you're pushing it ahead of time, this is like, doesn't really come up very many places. The one place you could argue it kind of comes up is in reinforcement learning, but there the ability to acquire vast amounts of data is sort of much simpler. And so it, it becomes a bit of a different problem and you have dynamics of the world that come in and these other kinds of things. So I think really perhaps the biggest challenge of what I've started to call like machine learning based design for, for example, protein engineering is this idea of how can I, can I extrapolate and how can I know if I can extrapolate? Right. And so, sorry, I've just gone on and on. Let me no, pause. And see. Um, I, I'm just so excited by this, I guess. I love working interdisciplinarily because I feel like this is what happens. You get these questions that come up that there's not already 50 other people currently trying to write a paper about, right? So, and this is what makes it really fun is just to have the, be a pioneer on some of these problems and just identifying them and making any progress at all. I mean, you know, one question for you, how often is it the case that you're starting with a biological question and you realize that there isn't really a mathematical tool to solve it and that you have to go kind of create a new foundational idea in ML? <laughs> it's hard to answer because um, I think that perhaps the, the question you, I'm going to guess the question you meant to say is if I just probed uniformly at random among all problems, what's the probability versus if I... <laughs> Um, use my Bayesian prior to pick problems. What's the probability? So mine are highly enriched for this, uh, which is probably yep. why I have a career. <laughs> uh, but I think that's the, it's very, very hard to find a problem that matters where current tools aren't good enough to do something very useful and where the development of new tools really make a difference. I think this is actually the hardest thing 
to find is that. And if you can find that, you're like golden on research. If you can do that, you're smart enough to do everything else, I think. Um, and so, and it's hard because you have to kind of sniff around, I think, and have a bit of a gut feeling because a lot of times also some of the problems that we're working on emerge from real projects, but those real projects at the get-go didn't necessarily look like they needed new machine learning. And so it's all, it's, you know, it's always, I'm always telling my students, like, it's careful, you know, like, like look for collaborators who are appreciate your skill set, seem genuinely interested in collaboration. They understand that you also need to get something out of this. But then don't worry necessarily if from the get-go it looks like they just like you just need to apply a predictive model. Like, because that's not what my group wants to do. But until you start forging that relationship, get deeper into the science, it's hard to know. Um, I mean, you could go sit by yourself and read a lot, but I think it's better to work on a project with somebody that seems like a good lead and see where it goes. And, and sometimes what happens is that it doesn't require particularly new machine learning, but it might get you thinking in very interesting directions that uh, bring to your attention like or your own creativity a new machine learning problem that you can pursue independently of that because it's not really going to help that project but you realize somehow you know just I guess for me interacting with lots of people thinking about lots of problems just feeds into the general creativity process. I'm, I'm curious if we could go and do like a, a case study of, of one of your pieces of work on this and I'm curious how the project evolved and um, that project is guide design for CRISPR-Cas9. Um, how did you arrive at that problem? Actually, that's a very easy one to describe. So what okay. happened is I had just moved in 2014 from um, Los Angeles to Boston, always with Microsoft Research. And when I arrived there, I was the only, the, the New England lab, Microsoft New England lab sitting in Cambridge, Massachusetts, adjacent to MIT is, is quite small there at the time. I don't know what it is now, but at the time there was maybe, I don't know, 20, 25 full-time researchers and there was nobody else doing any biology. There were no applied machine learning people doing anything close to like what I was doing. And so in some sense I was completely on my own, whereas my whole career up and well, at Microsoft up until then, I'd been around at least a few people that were interested in the same problems. And so I was like, wow, I better figure out how to do something interesting. So I pinged as many people as I could, got on as many talk announcements as I could. And then one day I saw a talk announcement for CRISPR guide design, and I actually had misinterpreted it. I didn't, I thought it was actually a computational talk. Uh, it was John Dench was giving, it was like a two hour talk at the Broad Institute. And I went and I sat there and I had vaguely heard of CRISPR. I didn't, you know, know quite how important it was, but I had a, a feeling that it was one of these things that was going to be really important. So that partly brought me there. And I listened to it. And as John was talking, I thought this, this is, this is like exactly a problem that needs machine learning. Like I, it's sort of kind of perfect. And then I was a little disheartened because at some point halfway through his talk, he started explaining that they had started to use machine learning. I was like, oh, that's kind of too bad. But it turns out they had just started. They didn't have a lot of expertise in the area. And so I, I basically just went up to him at the end of the talk and I said, hi, I've just moved here like three weeks ago. I don't know anything about CRISPR other than what you just said, uh, but I know a lot of machine learning. I think your problem really needs machine learning expertise. And I have like a long history on working on these kinds of interdisciplinary problems. So that was kind of the most ridiculously easy, productive collaboration I've ever done, because it's not usually like that. 
<laughs> and you got it on the on the ground floor. I mean, like the the one of the first talks about guide design. You just you were there, and then you kind of managed to dovetail in with that group. Uh, I'm curious if we could we could break it down uh, for our listeners, though. What what is CRISPR Cas9, and what was the actual problem that needed solving, and what were the metrics you were trying to yeah. improve on? If anybody's heard of it, they've heard of the term gene editing, which means essentially, right, like go in like you would do your Word document, cut out a few letters or a word and put in a different one. Of course, in this case, that's the genetic code and to alter it to, you know, combat disease or, or other such applications. And the actually what John Denches is in the screening platform, or he, he's, he's sort of the director of the screening platform, which is concerned with a slightly different use case, which is to knock out particular genes so that you can observe what the effect is or because they're malfunctioning or for these kinds of reasons. So rather than making an edit, it says, I just want to knock out this gene, but nothing else. I don't want to do anything else. And it turns out that the, the technology for that had not yet been perfected. And CRISPR was sort of coming around to be the state of the art procedure to do that with high precision and like that you manage to do it just the gene you want and not anything else. And so, so that was the problem was how, how could we get CRISPR to knock out any gene of our choice, but not do damage anywhere else? And so, so that's, I guess, the overview of the problem. And then getting a bit more into the specifics of like, okay, so how does machine learning come into this? CRISPR is sort of like when I do my slides, I show like a little Pac-Man protein of Cas9. Cas9 is the like Pac-Man that comes in, snips the genome. And then stuff happens. Either it snips it and destroys it. That's how you knock out the gene. Or it snips it and you sneak in like some extra letters that then make the edit, right? But the key thing is, how do I get this Cas9 Pac-Man that the chomps on the genome? How do I get it to where it needs to be? And how do I make sure it's not going somewhere else? And so the whole key to that is the RNA guide. And so basically you design an RNA string um, from the RNA alphabet that is going to match on in a complementary way to the part of the genome that you care about and not to anywhere else. And if you can get that RNA guide to have that property, then you'll achieve what you would like to do. Oh, well, that's the first thing that needs to happen. I mean, then some other stuff has to happen properly, but that's like a prerequisite in terms of getting it where you want it to go and not somewhere else. And so... If you're a lab and you say, I want to go knock out gene B, like you don't actually know. You might have these, these sort of gut feelings about this, but none of them sort of bear out with high predictive power. And so the question is, if I don't want to waste resources, uh, both time and money, like, can you tell me which of these, say, 100 possible places I could guide the CRISPR-Cas9 to should I use? And so that now is amenable to machine learning. If you can collect some examples that demonstrate how effective different things are in different parts of different genes, and if you can generalize from those properties. And so basically what John, John you know, is a very clever molecular biologist designed ways to measure these things at some scale so that we had examples and we spent many hours discussing how to make the most use of this. And so that, that was essentially the project. Um, and we did, we had two halves of it. One was to say, if I want to knock out this gene, which guide should I use? But the flip side was, if I don't want to knock out anything else or do any other damage, what should I not use? And then to think about how to balance those two things. One, one thing I, um, that comes to mind as you're describing the types of data that you're working with is that nature provides us a couple positive examples 
or a protein that actually does work. And they're kind of like these stars in the sky. Yeah. And then you can make all these local perturbations around those stars and build a little galaxy of things that kind of work. And, you know, it's really hard to hop between these different galaxies. And so I'm, I'm hearing that you're thinking about this kind of out of distribution detection work. Um, it seems also, I mean, forgive me if this is an overreach, to kind of mirror your career path in that there's little galaxies of things that you're working on. And you spend five years in one of those little constellations and really kind of absorb all the fun into it and then move on. And I'm curious what you think, if you have a hint of what your next um, you know, field of residence might be. You know, I honestly, I have never been so excited by research as I have been since I moved to Berkeley. And I think partly I think this area is super exciting. And partly it's that I have a group and the Berkeley is just super vibrant and it's a different environment and that I get to work on more things because I have a group. And so I have no plans to to change anytime soon. Like I feel like for the first time in my life that I might stick with this one quite a bit longer. I mean, who knows, maybe you might become years. a dreaded expert. <laughs> Um, so I, I think that it's such a hard problem. It's exactly the right time to work on it. Um, there's so much possible reward and there's so much interest in labs who want to do this. So there's just a tremendous amount of opportunity. And for someone who's interested in trying to find some challenging machine learning problems and not use off the shelf stuff, I feel that at every corner we turn, there's like a kind of a machine learning problem, which almost always is impossible. And so the question is like, okay, do we kind of ignore that? Or do we figure out like a bite-sized chunk that we can make some progress on? And so I really just feel like this is the most exciting set of problems that has emerged from any of the areas I've worked in. And so for that reason, I think I might stick with it longer. If I'm just sitting by myself, I'm not going to think of all these interesting problems. Like it's this, it's the, it's the conversations that create that. Right. And so I, although I had that with colleagues, like I have it in a different and a very special way in academia. And so it could be that that's partly the reason I feel this way, but I don't know. I somehow, uh, protein engineering just feels like it's gonna, I'm going to stick with it for a while. Very cool. You know, thanks so much for coming today, Jennifer. It's just been a wonderful conversation with you. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me. Huge thanks to Jennifer Liskarten. Regular listeners will know that this is the point when we take time at the end of each episode in the spirit of regular in-person meetups in Boston many years ago to discuss a big problem, the nail, and possible solutions, the hammers, inspired by what we just heard. So Alex, do you have a hammer or a nail this week? I I have kind of a, I, I don't know if it's a hammer or a nail. Maybe it's like a system for classifying uh, those that put hammers and nails together. Uh, maybe it's like the, the aisles at the hardware store where you find hammers and nails or something like that. I'm, I'm getting a little bit meta. There's a concept that comes to mind when I hear about Jennifer Liskarden's work called Pasteur's Quadrant. Have you heard of Pasteur's Quadrant before, Anthony? No. Uh, actually, I, I'm a great admirer of Pasteur, but I don't know about the quadrant. Yeah, so Louis Pasteur's uh, research is a perfect example, at least in his later years, of a blending of very basic fundamental research, so a quest for fundamental understanding, and also 
he worked on useful problems. He worked on real problems that people in the industry of his time had. So Louis Pasteur was a very famous chemist um, a couple hundred years ago. And initially he was famous for discovering um, stereoisomers or, or racemic mixtures, the fact that two molecules can be mirror images of each other. And uh, pasteurization, which we're all familiar with in the milk aisle, is named after him. So he didn't discover the technique for pasteurization that was actually uncovered in kind of a, uh, an X prize equivalent um, back in the day, uh, but he did uncover the actual mechanisms by which pasteurization or kind of heat curing food in order to protect it for long periods of time, uh, he discovered why that works, which is you kill little microbes that are in food. And then when you can it and bottle it, there's nothing to eat or to spoil the food over long periods of time. And if you keep oxygen outside of that container, there's nothing to feed those microbes so that they can grow back. So Pasteur's quadrant is a concept that tries to capture the notion that there's different types of research that can be done with different goals. And there was a fellow named Donald Stokes who introduced this concept. And he was, a, um, he was in science policy in America, kind of in post-World War II America, where there was an absolute explosion of basic and applied research that were happening. And there was this debate and this fight uh, about whether or not the U.S. government should fund basic research that didn't have a use in military applications or in industry, and whether or not it should just only focus on applied problems, right? So it's kind of a question of bang for the buck of the taxpayer money. And there was a very strong argument that was being made, which is you can do both at once, because Pasteur was emblematic of it. So in his later research career, Louis Pasteur worked on problems that were brought to him by industrialists in his community. And so one of the first problems that was brought to him was this notion of uh, how to turn beet juice into alcohol. <laughs> Very important problem. <laughs> Very important problem. I mean, there's all this yeah. beet juice in the world just waiting to become alcohol. And in France, people were clamoring <laughs> to have this problem solved. But in reality, this was someone's livelihood and someone's real problem. They approached Pasteur and said, we don't know how to do this reliably. Pasteur took a very close look at this problem and figured out that fermentation is biological, that there's little microorganisms that are responsible for converting sugars into alcohols, and that these microorganisms like to live in very particular types of conditions of heat and humidity and, and uh, uh, all kinds of other properties, and uh, helped solve that problem of the beet juice to alcohol challenge. And this is emblematic of a lot of Pasteur's research, which is there was a real pressing problem that couldn't be solved with off-the-shelf methods. And Pasteur had to really dig in and understand what was happening fundamentally in this process in order to solve the problem. And I bring this up because this is what Jennifer Lisgarden has been doing for her whole career. I mean, she said it herself. She looks for those problems. She uses her kind of scientific nose to look for those problems where nobody knows technically how to solve it. But if you could invent new machine learning in that area, you'd make incredible advances. And that's what she's done. And I don't think that one of these quadrants, and let me, let me just describe this, this, this table that Donald Stokes came up with. So Pasteur just occupies one of four quadrants in this description of different types of research. And I want to be very clear, no one quadrant is, is, is better than the other. They all work together to advance understanding. So on one axis, going from bottom to top, is, is there a quest for fundamental understanding? 
right? And then there's a, there's a no row and there's a yes row on top of the no row. And then left to right, there's, is the research being directed for something useful today? Uh, and then there's no uh, column on the left and a yes column on the right, and they intersect and create four quadrants. Now on the upper right, is it being used for something applicable today? And is it a quest for fundamental understanding? Well, Pasteur is yes in both. Jennifer Liskarten is yes in both, right? Use-inspired basic research is what Donald Stokes called it. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I've heard the phrase use-inspired research a few times, but I didn't realize that this was the origin of it. That's fascinating. Okay, keep on going, please. Yeah, the, the roots here are, are, are in, in arguments about scientific funding, which is not generally where I think a lot of great thinking occurs. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, that's, that's where uh, the, the sausage gets made in terms of the, the money to actually do science. But this has inspired some really interesting, I think, philosophy of science in tr the tradition of, for instance, Thomas Kuhn, who was a philosopher of science and had a theory of how breakthroughs proceeded. So briefly, Thomas Kuhn, one of my favorite philosophers, mentioned that science proceeds in kind of a stamp collecting phase where we're collecting a lot of data. We don't really know what to do with it. Uh, and then all of a sudden there's a breakthrough which organizes it. So for instance, a Mendeleev's um, periodic table organized a lot of information into a very useful format that was a breakthrough. And then lots of stamp collecting, stamp collecting, boom, some other breakthrough, right? So this is a different idea. This is a different theory. And this is Donald Stokes' uh, uh, quadrants of research. So Pasteur is in the upper right quadrant. We haven't talked about the upper left, the lower right, or the lower left yet. So in the upper left quadrant, not a consideration of use, but a quest for fundamental understanding. So this would be like uh, Bohr, right? The physicist. This would be uh, Kepler, right? So Kepler uh, looked at the data um, of where the, the, the stars were moving and came up with a theory of elliptical orbits, right? That's not going to help anybody. In fact, the main application of astronomy, if I understand it correctly in the day, was to do astrology, which was to kind of appease people in, in the royal courts with reading their futures and telling their horoscopes, right? So not necessarily, you know, basic engineering use-directed research. So that's the upper left is a quest for fundamental understanding without a direct application. And that's kind of what we normally think of when we think of science, but that's just one piece of what we do. Now on the bottom right, no quest for fundamental understanding, but we're looking for applications and use, right? Thomas Edison belongs there. Ah, of course. Right. So he wants to make a brighter, better light bulb, but he doesn't really care about Maxwell's equations or electromagnetism. He just says, is the light bulb brighter today or not? Like that's the only metric of success. Now, let me ask you a question on that one. Would you put some of the modern technologists, a la Bill Gates, Elon Musk, uh, in that category, especially at a stage when they were still closer to the technology? I think I would. And, and you know, there's this question of whether or not you call what they do engineering or applied research. And my slice between the two, and it's a really blurry line, really blurry. Um, and this is even, I mean, we know this very deeply at Google, um, that the, when you transition from research to engineering and back can be, you just sometimes you can't tell. But my line is, if you know what you're doing, it's engineering. And if you don't know what you're doing, it's research, right? <laughs> so if you know the answer ahead of time, it's engineering. You just need to just go stepwise in order to solve your problem. But if you can't see the end of the road, even if it's not for something that advances our understanding or builds a theory, I, I call that research at least. Awesome. So we filled three of the four quadrants, right? So 
pure basic research, that's like Bohr and Kepler, pure applied research, that's Edison, maybe Elon Musk and Bill Gates too. I really like that. And then the upper right is Pasteur, use-inspired basic research. And I would put Jennifer Lisgarden in that quadrant as well. I think she's, she's just, as, just as much a peer of Pasteur. What about the fourth quadrant? It's not useful and it's not a, a foundational advance. So probably that's just worthless, right? Yeah, it would seem from both of those descriptions that this is empty for a reason, that it's just not interesting. But if you go back and you read the book, and it's called Pastor's Quadrant. Uh, it's by this guy, again, Donald Stokes, who was thinking about why we do different types of research and why it's valuable. He says quite emphatically, it's not empty and it's not worthless. It's, it's a quadrant of taxonomy. So he gives the example of a famous uh, bird collector. And he said, you know, this quadrant is filled with uh, people that uh, catalog all the birds in North America. I think that this is Tycho Brahe's quadrant, right? So Tycho Brahe had an enormous and elaborate observatory on an island funded by the Danish government, I believe. Um, it was actually like a couple percent of their GDP at the time, an enormous expenditure to observe the stars. He generated data and he was a mathematician of his own right, but he's not known for that. He's known for the data that he generated and also for the infrastructure that he built in order to get that data and then to make use of it. And it was his employee, Kepler, who used that data to come up with the theory of elliptical orbits. And so I think that this quadrant is far from useless, but its use flows into other quadrants, into kind of the, the sexier impact that we think of today. Um, but all these quadrants are connected. So I, I do want to emphasize that this quadrant is not empty. Wikipedia and Donald Stokes, I think, did a disservice to one of the most important activities in science today, which is generating infrastructure, generating data sets. And this is particularly important today in our era of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I'll give you modern examples of this. I mean, I, I am of the opinion that AI breakthroughs occur one data set at a time not one paper at a time, right? So all of these amazing developments in clinical image processing and natural language processing, those are directly causally downstream from data sets, from ImageNet for images, which really opened up the whole deep learning revolution, and then from the internet, which is our greatest data source today. And you can't make use of that data without infrastructure. And so there's a lot of work that goes into labeling those images and to hosting the internet and scraping it, et cetera. But also you need tools for machine learning. So I would say that in Brahe's quadrant are research efforts like building the TensorFlow machine learning system, uh, building the JAX machine learning system, which is kind of what uh, a lot of researchers at Brain are, are using today. Uh, and also PyTorch, which is kind of in the same pantheon of, of tools. So building those tools, building those data sets is an incredibly important part of research. And that quadrant is not empty. It's Brahe's quadrant, and it's deeply important to the advancement of science. You know, this is uh, this is really interesting, Alex, and you, you sparked a few thoughts with me. Um, you know, going back to the kind of Brahe example, Brahe, as you said, collected all this data. What Kepler kind of did was curve fitting. Mm -hmm. And then there was, of course, a third person in the continuum, which was Newton, who came up with the deeper first principles for what was going on. 
Uh, and, you know, I have an idea I'd like to put in front of you, okay. which is as we think about the kind of modern uh, deep learning revolution, here's an analogy, and I'm curious, to see, and I gave it to Greg Carrado last season, that in some sense, the web is Brahe, or, or going with your, inf- your theme of not just data, but also infrastructure, right. the web plus public clouds are Brahe. Right. So the data set plus the ability to, to, to access it, to sift through it. Got it. Yeah. And yep. compute on it at very, you, know, you think about training a billion model parameter, uh, that's, you know, that requires a lot of compute. Right. Uh, you know, and then we're kind of in the Kepler era with deep learning where, you know, and again, tell me if I'm overgeneralizing because you live this every day, but there's a, a kind of sense that there are these new ideas that are working demonstrably better than things that have come in the past. But unlike, you know, support vector machines, they, they don't have the quite the same theoretical grounding. At least that's my impression. And so we're still kind of waiting for the Newton. And you're starting to see glimmers of it. And obviously, there's a lot of people working on the theoretical foundations of deep learning, not to say that it's not being addressed. It hasn't yet had its Newton's moment. Do you, do you agree with this? Yeah, I, I do. Um, just some small qualifications, which is that, you know, machine learning is a, is a big field and deep learning and neural networks are one piece of it. Uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it was a very, very small piece of it. And now it's a very, very big piece of it. No, um, totally fair. And so there are people that are still working on uh, machine learning and advancing machine learning and statistical techniques that have the theoretical grounding now. And they're pushing for that along with its kind of empirical use. But deep learning, you're right, is pretty unbalanced right now. The developments in deep learning have, in in my view, uh, come around through kind of empirical work or experimentation. And there is no theory right now which can tell you, you should use this neural network architecture to solve that problem. You have to just go try. Yeah. Um, which is not a place you want to necessarily be in long term in science. But it's working really well and we can't ignore that. And one thing I think I'd like to touch on later this season is this notion of the relationship between science and technology, right? So I'll just kind of leave this here and and maybe we'll dig in a little bit later, but the steam engine existed before thermodynamics. And in fact, physics was occupied in a lot of the 19th century and figuring out why the heck it works so well. So Carnot and Gibbs, who are known for their work on this topic, didn't discover it or make the steam engine that much better, but they knew of its existence and the existence of the technology drove the science. I think something similar might be happening here, right? At least we have a front row seat to it. You know, this is fantastic. Um, Thank you for bringing up this Pasteur's quadrant. Uh, It's interesting. Usually you're the hammer and I'm the nail in these discussions, but I, I, I thought it was awesome that today you brought a nail. You know, I think you've inspired me. Next week, I might try and actually bring a hammer. Uh, okay. You'll all have to bear with uh, the simple country cardiologist uh, <laughs> trying to talk through an idea that really has me revved up, which goes under the name of double descent or interpolation or overparameterization. But um, you know, one of my good friends and colleagues, Carolyn Uller, has you know really been working on this and exposed me to a lot of new ideas. And it's very related to what we're talking about here. So maybe that I'll, I'll try and put a pin in that for next week. And when we're also talking to Caroline as our guest. I'm really looking forward to both the conversation and, and hearing about overparameterization. <laughs> Great. I can't wait to chat next week. We'll be speaking with Caroline Uller. And then later in the series, we'll be speaking with Aviv Regev from Genentech, GV's Krishna Yeshwant, David Altshuler, Chief Scientific Officer of Vertex, and before that, founder of the Broad Institute. Uh, If you've got any questions for us, please 
send us an email at theoryandpracticegv.com or tweet at GV team. We'd love to hear from you. This is a GV podcast and a Blanchard House production. Our producers were Hilary Geit, Lily O'Mahaney, Nico Raufast, and Rosie Pye, with music by Dalo. I'm Anthony Filipakis. I'm Alex Wolchko. And this is Theory and Practice.